Hey, welcome to Educate for Life with Ryan Francis. Let's get right into it. All right. Well, I figure we should just kind of wander into this and just see what okay. happens. So, you are you down with that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the way I live my life. I'm a wanderer. <laughs> <laughs> Or a wanderer, I don't. <laughs> well, uh, this is the return of the great Paul Pietro Carlo. We did not finish our conversation, sir. Uh, no. The last time we we got so deep into what was only going to be one of three topics we wanted to talk about that uh, we needed to we needed to cut it off. So yeah. we thought today we would jump back in and see what comes of. Uh, you know, discussing other things on, on that, on that list. What do you say? I say, let's go. All right. Fantastic. Well, so last we were chatting about handling transitions and, uh, we chatted some about, you know, is there such thing as a good transition, uh, which long short was, uh, that's all up to you, how you define and experience a transition. Often transitions are thrust upon us. Uh, other times we are consciously choosing them. So of course that often makes a significant difference. We talked about having self-compassion because it's so easy to get down on ourselves for our so-called weaknesses. And uh, no one wants to accept, oh, I say no one, I'm being hyperbolic intentionally. No one wants to accept their limitations. We right. all chafe against our limitations. So accepting those limitations, having self-compassion and being able to grow from that place. Uh, and we were starting to chat about what it meant to play off of our strengths as kind of an extension from self-compassion um, because we started to touch on um, talking about fear and the messages we give ourselves and how we approach decision-making all in the context of those transitions. So I thought it might be cool. Well, actually, no. Instead of me taking the reins here, is there a place you wanted to start? Well, you know, it just, it just well, no, it's okay with you holding the reins because uh, I, I, I get hits all the time. And, um, you know, I just, uh, you know, in the, in the interim, since we, we, we last did this, um, you know, it's really come to me to uh, trust myself Mm. trust my 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 whatever decisions I'm making because my typical pattern is oh you know we've got this on the agenda how about if I have too many choices I always have seemed to have too many choices in my life forever it just mm -hmm. like uh, I mean I have a lot of interests I have a lot of knowledge I have a lot of friends I have a lot of opportunity okay but I get inundated and all of a sudden I'm like stuck I don't move it's like well, if I do that, and I, this cuts off this, if I cut off that, then that's, you know, the blah, blah, blah. And, um, but it's just in the last couple of weeks, it's just come clear to me, hey, just trust yourself. Mm. Be trusting of yourself. You're going to do fine. You have, you have all these things. You have all these tools. You have all these resources. You, you have the knowledge. You have compassion, and you have uh, an open heart. And just let those things be what they are, and they'll get you through. And uh, for a long time, and I may resist again, but I did resist it for you know, you know, many many epochs of my life, if you will. Mm. So yeah, I, that's so fascinating that that popped like three or four different things straight into my head when you were saying that. 
Um, I don't know if this is a mutual, a person of mutual acquaintance, so maybe this sounds familiar to you, um, who said to me something to the effect of, and I can't remember if it was directly to me or in a group, which is why I'm wondering if maybe it's someone we both know, who said, uh, when you start to feel overwhelmed by options, it's valuable to say something to the effect of, in the smorgasbord of life, mm-hmm. what is the dish that I would most enjoy right now? Right. Or what is the dish that would bring most value to me right now? So recognizing that there are lots of options and choosing in that moment of potential overwhelm to say, well, just what's, what's, what's immediately available to me? What's addressable? What's what I mean, choose, choose your, your angle of approach, but simply like, let's just start with one dish and not feeling the need to consciously choose the dish. Again, I love to say that our, our brains are more than just our thinking bits. You know, it's not like we have to consciously choose everything. Sometimes we have enough information and enough, enough processes going on in our brain that we can literally, as you said, trust and just go, okay, What's the pop pop into my head thing? (laughs) And then there it is. It's like, okay. And then it's a matter of the trust and not second guessing that that is a valuable thing to approach. We we try to, we've talked about perfectionism a lot as if there is the perfect choice to make right now, the perfect dish to eat right now. It's like, should I eat an apple or an orange? Well, it's an apple and an orange. Like, is, is it really wrong to eat an apple versus eat an orange? I mean, okay, if you have some like allergy or other complication, sure, maybe. But otherwise, it's just an apple and an orange. Just like, what do you feel like right now? I guess I feel like an orange. Great, eat an orange. Oh, I didn't feel like an orange. Oh, well, I guess put half of it away and, and eat the apple. Like, it's not, it doesn't have to be as big of a deal as we make, right. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, it comes back to the notion that decisions are just that. They're not positive. They're not negative. They're just choices and once again you make a choice it sends you off on another plane another trajectory whatever and you move on that trajectory until another choice is upon you and boom you now you're heading in a different direction um the, the, and and i think where it gets confusing is the unknowing you know there's a certain amount of randomness and what i find in life is that everybody wants to make things certain yeah. They want to say, okay, here's my path. I'm constructing this path. And they get all, you know, there was one of my, you know, so I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> do it as well. <laughs> I've been really conscious of them lately. I say like a lot, so it's all good. Uh, my daughter is the like girl. Uh, <laughs> but um, we want, we, we have this notion and, and it's like everybody's, in control. Everybody wants to give the illusion of being in control. And I find myself very impatient with those sorts of people. And I have to, I don't, I just kind of back off, recede into the wall, into the woodwork, if you will, and just let them play the control game because I, uh, every time I try to control I get in really serious shit. I mean, something goes really afoul for me. And it's, it's like, look, I'm here. I keep moving. Everything, I wouldn't say everything is rosy, but everything is, life is good. Right. And, and I don't have to concern myself with 
controlling every little facet of every little thing and knowing that in five years time, this is exactly what it's going to look like. Right. I mean, it has to do with expectations. You know, there's the dual, there's the dual thing about expectations. There's the, uh, the expectation that it's not going to work. And there's the expectation that what happens if it does work, it's not really what you expected in the first place. And then if you, it doesn't work, if it's failure, well, you got, you get the negative expectation. So it's, it's, it's real interesting and it's hard to keep on top of, uh, especially surrounded in society with, with how our society is. I mean, we just really, we're the, we're the destroyers of the environment because we want to control it. Well, and the irony that occurs to me in this moment is that people are most often controlling when they feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And mm. overwhelm can come from many sources. It can, but the, the core, of course, is some form of insecurity. Right. And, and, and that might be a general sense that life is insecure and uncertain and that feels unsafe. Um, or it could be, I've just been offered multiple opportunities that I'm needing to decide. It could be anything, but there's a core feeling of insecurity that produces this sense of overwhelm. And what's so interesting is the control of the overwhelm or an attempt to be controlling in order to handle the overwhelm often increases, often increases the sensation of overwhelm and reduces our resources in making the decisions that we need to make. Right. The fact is when we process things from a a sense of safety, whether or not we are safe, I want to be clear. This has nothing to do with whether or not the circumstance you are in is safe. This has to do with whether or not there is a fundamental program running in your brain that says, I operate from a sense of security and safety. The actual circumstances are irrelevant. Right. If you ha- if you're coming from that place, the overwhelm isn't there. The need for control isn't there, and you actually, you as an individual, me as an individual, we have more resources to spend to expend on making a decision on analyzing the circumstances on being conscious and aware. When I say analysis, I don't necessarily mean deep analysis. I, it might just be trusting our intuition right. regardless of our, our approach, whether we are a logic-based, emotion-based, or intu- intuition-based decision maker. We have the resources to do that when we are not feeling insecure and in a sense of overwhelm. So it's not like in this moment, I'm going to choose not to be overwhelmed. It's a practice of developing the that trust that you were just describing where it's like i i survived till today right i survived to this point you know what's the what's the likelihood that this next decision is truly do or die so again i'm not talking about do or die decisions i'm talking about those ones where we're behaving like it's do or die and it's not and then when we back off of that when we take ourselves from a anxious mess from a 10, you know, anxiety down to like a two or a three, a base level, like, yeah, okay, I, I know that I can make a quote mistake. This could not go well. But once we ratchet it down, now suddenly we have all that energy that we were expending on being nervous and overwhelmed. Now we're spending it on making the decision. And suddenly, oh, this decision is so much easier to make. I've had to do that so many times updating this townhouse. I cannot tell you how many days 
I spent <laughs> upwards of 45 minutes doing nothing but monitoring my self-talk. Mm. where I had, to, I got so overwhelmed. Should I be finishing cutting planks for the floor? Should I be, you know, hanging this thing on the wall? Should I be worrying about that wiring? Should I be contacting a contractor? Should I, should, 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 should hear all those shoulds? Yes. Like there was a right decision to make in that moment of that list somehow because I felt so overwhelmed and because I've never done this before. And so I felt a huge amount of vulnerability and risk that I was going to screw it up and then have to live in the house that I screwed up. And I had to really consciously just go. Baby step, baby step. Breathe, just breathe. And sometimes I would inadvertently pace because I would go to start one job. It wouldn't feel quite right, quite right, as if feeling right is the litmus for whether or not it's a good thing to do, which by the way, if you've been watching my Instagram recently, you know that it's not. Um, and I would just like go to start the next job and start the next and start the next and go, okay, Ryan, choose one, choose one. Okay. I would choose one. And then once I got it done, I was like freedom. Oh my God, this feels so much better. I feel I suddenly have all this energy back. Oh my gosh, I can make the next decision with more confidence. And then I'd make confident decisions for a little while. And then I'd have a break where I needed to do something else that wasn't the house. And then I'd come back to the house like three days later and feel all that overwhelm all over again. I need to remind myself, you got it. You you were okay the last time. Yeah. You were okay the last time. It worked out okay. Spend 45 minutes breathing, jumping between jobs, doing whatever else and repeat the pattern. Um, Yesterday, I had the same thing happen where suddenly I had a list of things to do. I hadn't slept well, which made things worse. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point I went, I need physical labor. There's a bunch of stuff that I could do with research or for my business or whatever else. I need physical labor. I need chop wood, carry water. If if I'm thinking too much, I need to, uh, it's thinking is not serving me right now. Um, I'm going to take physical action. And I did, and I cut some boards and I did some this, I did some that, you know, sanding. And then I felt fan freaking tastic just like an hour and a half of just physical labor. And I was like, oh, I'm human again. Yeah. This is so nice. And I think, I think uh, for men too, that's, it's doing that and seeing something actually produced is very mm-hmm. important to us. And I think we, we, we've come away from that a lot in modern society. We, I mean, you know, our job is typing on a keyboard and not, not having something finished at the end of the day that we can actually look, touch, admire, mm-hmm. boast about, and, and, and feel accomplished with. Yeah. yeah. Having a physical result sometimes is so sure. critical, so positive, so fantastic. To just, uh, you know. I know for me too, because of that, because I, I don't do a lot of that. I mean, I've been doing a lot of yoga, and a lot of yoga, like yoga nidra, where I'm just shutting down, I'm just letting my mind go free. And uh, it's, it's, it's helping a lot. It's helping. I, I'm just loving it. And I also, I, I have, I've been doing lists, right? So nice. you can see some of these things are scratched and some aren't. And sometimes I get all freaked out about not scratching them off. And it's like, Hey, it'll get done. Cause I know sometimes I sit down and I, these things I resist doing. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I resist, I resist, I resist. Oh, 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 it's getting all tight. And I sit down, do it, boom, boom, they're done. And it's like, why was I resisting this for so long? Yeah. 
Well, a- let's let's talk about that because something that we wanted to talk concretely about right. was the traps we fall into. Right. And I think it's it it's quote easy unquote to just feel the resistance. I think there's value into diving into the resistance to dismantle it. If we are in the capacity, if we have the capacity in that moment to consciously do it, sometimes the choice is to to not dismantle it at all, but we'll get to that next. Sure. So I just wanted to touch on this notion of fear generally um, and specifically the fears of success, failure, and death and how they inform this, this overwhelm we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. So if you were to identify which of those three you were feeling looking at your to-do list, what would you say? Well... Uh, not so much the to-do list, but in my life in general, I think um, death is a big one. I mean, we death death always kind of plays into it. In that, okay, I've only got so much time to be in, on this plane, whatever whatever we are here now. I've only got so much time, and I'm almost out. I got I figured twenty, thirty more years, and who knows what I can do in that time? Who knows if I'll be physically and mentally capable of still doing things? So points to better do it now, better do it now. Mm. Uh, failure, um, fear of failure. Um, I just don't know how valid that is. I mean, I fear it. I, I, it, I, it works on me, but it's like, is it really true? Is anything a failure? I, I, I mean, I, I suppose I suppose if I took a, too much of a risk driving my car too fast and and got killed, that would be a that would be a failure. Hmm. But, uh, but other than that, um, it's you know the failure really comes again with expectation. Those my that's what I've notated here. Mm. Yeah. What do I expect? Um, am I really gonna? If I don't achieve that exact that, that exact goal that I had set out for myself, if it's something lesser or different than, is that really a failure? No, it's I'm moving on. I keep moving, and now I have a whole new set of toys to to play with, or a whole new path to walk down and see what I discover along the way. And success. Um, yeah, that's a tough one. That's probably that's probably the worst one for me. I have a real hard relationship with money. Um, and I understand that money is the medium that makes every consciously or not, I don't know, yeah, I guess consciously, intellectually, I guess is the better word that money is the medium that makes everything happen. Mm. But I also find money gets so distorted into status and and classes and all that because I'm, I'm a good Marxist what can I say um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I mean I understand the need, I understand capitalism how it works but I think somehow it's gotten it's just it's just getting out of hand I think that there's so many people that think they're so much better than other people and uh, it just smacks me the wrong way and it, and it, and it limits me and I, and I allow it to limit me rather than saying, okay, look, this money, is, you know, money will do me good so I can do others good, either in my family, my community, to the world, to whatever. So 
I'm kind of re right now. I'm, re, I'm working hard to realign those attitudes that I've carried for for a long, 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 long time. Yeah, yeah, and money, it's interesting that you say that because I have an interesting relationship with money myself, and I recognize for me, it's it's a few things. One, um, when people say money is just energy, it's like okay, hmm. yeah, yes. Yeah. I would phrase it differently because that sounds a little woo-woo for me personally. Right. But I, I appreciate that essentially what, what when people say energy is just, or it's rather money is just energy, it's it's the currency of exchange. Right. It's the means of, of indirect exchange. So we have decided collectively that this piece of paper is worth generally this much and then some of that decision is made for us by other parts of the collective. And that instead of bartering and directly exchanging goods for goods, as we used to, we're exchanging it for paper that, quote, holds its value so then we can use it later. Money is just literally a means of exchange. It's, it's literally a means of holding value so that we can exchange later instead of having to exchange in the moment. And that's incredibly powerful. So it's like, okay, if I just consider that... <clears throat> Then, then it's just it's just value exchange. Right. That, that's all it is. Which is why some people would say um, money is just energy, right? It, it, that's I, that's what I understand it to mean. It's just a transfer of energy, it's a transfer of value. Um, practically, practically speaking, that's all it is. So then, what's my beef with money? And I realize my beef isn't with money. It's with a bunch of other associations that I have with money. So, for example. Um, people with money. And so knowing the people that I've known who have had a lot of money, what, how do they behave? How do they treat others? What do I associate with that? Because it has nothing to do with the money. It has to do with them. And so then it's like, okay, now is it really them individually or is it a, a, the culture that comes up around money in certain ways? So you think about someone like Warren Buffett, now, granted, this is anecdotal, so right. uh, maybe someone knows more about his life or his family than, than me. Uh, I'm not an expert on Warren Buffett. What I understand about him is that he has consciously made choices about how he spent his money and how he raised his kids and how he's offering money to his family upon his passing that is to avoid entitlement. Right. To avoid a lot of the pitfalls of those who don't need to work for money in order to be able to make that exchange. So when I think about him, I go, well, maybe all of my associations with money are just that. They're just associations. They're not true. They're not real. I could be a gazillionaire and still be a really, like, not change right. at all. And, and any ways in which comfort and convenience might change me, it's my responsibility to stay aware so they change me as little as possible and I'm still as good of a human being as I could possibly be. Not saying that living your life with convenience makes you a bad human being, but simply I know about myself that I want to consciously engage. And if my whole life just becomes super convenient, then I'm no longer consciously engaging. And that's not what I want for myself. Now, suddenly reflecting on it that way, money has now just become a means of exchange. And, uh, and this is a big thing as a business owner. I give value. I receive a representation of value in exchange in the form of money that then allows me to give other people money and support what they do 
and honor the value that they give. Because the more money I have, the more money I can give to others to honor the value that they produce in the world. And that right now, not receiving money as an expression of the value I give the world and or not giving enough value to the world in order to receive that money, that's my limitation. That's my hang up. Like how much better for me to put myself out in the world, give as much value as possible, willingly and excitedly receive money for that value that I give, and then be able to give a lot of it to others and exchange something like just because I got it, it ends with me and no one ever gets it. You know, now I get to now I get to pay other people to do really awesome work, you know, yes. or honor the work they're doing. It's just it's a completely different like I'm still working on this to be clear. I just said that super sure. like like I've mastered this. I haven't mastered this. No. <laughs> but, but intellectually, I'm, I'm starting to internalize right. notions, you know? Well, I think I've always had a problem with extracting my own worth. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, maybe that's because I've underestimated my own self-worth. Or I just have a, the notion that, hey, I'm, I, I, uh, wh- whoever, whatever I am, whatever I do is... Uh, you know, a value, a value thing. I, I never, never, I never really looked at it like that. I mean, I just looked at it as a, here I am and I'm, I'm willing to do this and the amount of money I get for it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But, but then, then I see people operating well, okay, you dumb shit. What you doesn't, what <laughs> the amount of money you get doesn't matter. So I'm not going to give you any or I'm not going to give you enough. And therefore, I'm going to keep a whole bunch for myself. And thank you very much for for carrying the weight of this this endeavor on your shoulders for me for however long. It's that level four thing again. I'm doing it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just made you a million dollars. And you're giving me what? No, this doesn't work. And But the, the thing is, I... I uh, I let the pattern go on for so long without saying anything or standing up or asserting myself, whatever you want to call it. Then it's then it's too late. Then then it's like okay, time to move on. Yeah. So for those that haven't heard um, the description from, I believe it'll, it's the second episode of three that Paul and I did earlier. Level four is a reference to how we interact with the world. Levels one through seven, and level four has to do with. Um, being in a giving space where we give and we give and we give. And of course that can be really beautiful and express compassion and care and love. Uh, And also the downside of that is if we're not conscious of ourselves and our own limitations, then suddenly we burn ourselves out with giving. It can lend itself to martyrdom and then we're resentful and angry and we drop into what is a level one or a two level one being a victim level two lashing out at these people that aren't giving us what we needed because even though theoretically we're giving freely, actually we're giving with a baseline hope that we will receive in exchange for that, whether it's uh, directly from the people we're giving to or generally from others um, to support our continued giving. And as we know, it's not 
real to expect people to like not everyone's not going to be level four all together at the same time giving to each other that's and even if they were that's called codependency and that's a whole different conversation let's not worry about that and that was way oversimplified uh, i've talked about codependency more in other episodes this is this is not the space for that conversation but um i just wanted to highlight that level four sure quick and and so, so there's two things i want to do um, based on what we were just talking about. One is to get into self-talk because since that's essentially what you were talking about, defining right. your own worth and how the, our words to ourselves define our reality and the words we speak to others define our reality. Before we do that though, I just want to kind of walk down the list defining the fears of success, failure, and death just for to kind of People can think in reverse, I suppose, maybe appreciate some of the conversation we just had or analyze some of the conversation we just had in that context. Um, it's not the most important thing. I've talked about these things before, but just so it's all in one place. For sure. Um, I, I figured I would just kind of roll with my definitions and you can add in whatever you think. Sure. Does that work for you? Okay, sure. great. So let's start with fear of death because I think that's the most apparent, which is literally as an organism our desire is to survive. So unless we are having suicidal ideation, or even if we are, some people are still afraid of death while they're in the middle of their suicidal ideation, we want to live. That's, that's the core thing. And so we have so many components of our biology that act upon our thinking, our quote conscious mind, um, that say, don't do that, you'll hurt yourself. Don't do that, you'll die. And it doesn't matter whether we're literally we're going to die or not. That's just the biology. That's just how we're wired is to fear death. Would you, would you change anything or add anything to that? Uh, I think it all, it, it all comes around to death. Um, and, our, and then you add on that the, our, our, our construct of time. Mm. So we, we have the ability to kind of see time, if you will, or experience time, whereas if we were a less conscious sort of uh, organism, we might not know that that, that time is, is coming. It just, it just occurs. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it just makes us feel like, okay, I have accomplished this. I haven't accomplished so much other, so many other things, if you will. And, and now the, the clock is running. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is, is we die. We're born to die, really. And it's, and it's like, I mean, we're, we're going to die eventually and uh, being uh, wrapped up with it as a constant fear doesn't, doesn't work for me anyway. It's, mm-hmm. I just, I'll live until I don't live, and that's all. That's all I can do. Right. So that that is that is our our baseline reality. And actually, in a future episode, I'm gonna be talking with my buddy Nick, who's a existential humanist. He's a he's a therapist, and we're gonna talk a fair amount about anxiety around death. But so to check in about the fear of failure, the fear of failure to some degree is rooted in the fear of death. I.e., if I fail, I will die. Mm-hmm. Right, so that somehow either I will be rejected by the pack, and rejection means death, which I've talked about a lot, um, or I will make a misstep, and therefore I won't be able to eat, or I won't be able to have a place to sleep, or I won't be able to get my basic needs met. We we hype this up um, in many different ways. So the fear of fear of failure again is 
is a little more of a straight line. Right. So far as failure equals death to some, to some degree, um, no matter how many steps there are between the initial failure and the death, that's, it's like, I'm going to have a miserable life or I'm going to, there's some catastrophizing that happens in the fear of failure. You know, I'm not perfect. So no one will love me. It, it's a, a, a figurative death. Uh, what's a figurative death. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Um, whereas the fear of success is a little more complicated. And now I have my definition for the fear of success. I'll be really curious about your definition. Um, do you want to start or do you want me to start? I'll start um, since it's fresh here and I don't want to lose it. But I think the fear of success for me is that somehow either I'm going to change and I'm going to once again have that figurative death. And then I'm going to change so much with the success that I'm not going to recognize myself and those that I love or whomever is important to me, they're not going to recognize me either. And um, I don't know if I've really let that operate me. I'm sure it's there. There's an element of it present. It has been or is in my life. Um, I, I just, yeah, I think that's, it's it's there and I feel it. It's like wow, if this happened, what would I? If I were at this this economic plane, if you will, how how would I be different with that? What, was that gonna, is that going to make my life different? Am I going to be I'm gonna totally erase the paradigm I have right now and start a whole new one? Uh, yeah. So the, the the fear of death sneaks in there in the back door. Yeah, that's interesting. I. It, that's so different from the answer I was going to give. I'm really glad we started with your definition. I really appreciate this idea that success means change and change, therefore, is another figurative death. It's a death of your current self if you are successful. That's really fascinating. Um my definition of fear of success is very different, but I suspect just from hearing you say that there may be, may be related in, in an interesting way. We can get back to that in a second. For me, the fear of success is the fear of effort and therefore the fear of discomfort. It's mm -hmm. the fear that when we're successful, we need to replicate that success. And that effectively, by being successful, we're setting ourselves up for failure <laughs> because... Um, if I am successful, now I need to replicate the effort that I gave to remain right. successful. And because as humans, we are programmed to seek pleasure, avoid pain slash discomfort, and do things with as little effort as possible. None of the success does not reflect any of those things. People want like, success to come to them with no effort and their life to just magically change so that they can just sit on, you know, sit on their laurels, sit on their comfy couch and, and do nothing because really at the end we want pleasure. We don't want pain and we, we want things to come easily. So six in order to genuinely be successful, I need to choose to be quote unhappy, i.e. not immediately experiencing pleasure. I need to, consciously choose pain and discomfort 
and I need to break my patterns. So not just do the thing that's easy because it's familiar. And I've said this before, if you're really good at smashing your head against a wall, it's easier to keep smashing your head against the wall to stop. Because even though it takes effort to smash your head against the wall, mentally that takes less effort than stopping. Right. So success requires undoing each of those three things in turn and or simultaneously in order to get success. So let's say I've done all those things. I've motivated myself. I've taken the actions I need to take. I've put myself in discomfort, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I am now quote successful or I've experienced a singular success. Now I need to replicate that, which means I now need to choose to be uncomfortable all over again. And, and, and I, it's, it's a sense of responsibility by choosing success I'm now taking on the quote burden unquote of responsibility. I need to maintain responsibility for my actions in a way that I don't have to, if I don't choose to seek success. Right. Well, I think it's, you know, it all plays into, you know, in so many areas, uh, we set a goal and we think we're going to get to that goal. We're going to arrive at that point and okay, we've arrived. And now, now I can just like coast. And like you say, uh, that's not necessarily true. If I want to keep this going, I have to, again, start over again, make myself uncomfortable, put in, put in do things I really don't want to do, or uh, just maintain it. I get a little confused when I see this notion of people, this perpetual growth thing, right? Somehow or other, my camera went off again. It did. It's all good. We'll just keep it rolling. What is going on? I'm going nuts. Let's see if it'll come back on. Da, 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 da. I had to, I, I turned the FaceTime off. Okay, and never mind. We'll just we'll quit it. Um, so um, I can see you, however. That's yeah, my camera's working fine. There, There is an option on the bottom if you drag your mouse to the bottom of the screen. Yeah, it says start video. Yeah. Yeah, but it won't, uh, it's got a line through. Zoom is unable to detect a camera. For some reason, my camera is disappearing from from my computer here, which I I really don't understand. But uh, uh, where were we? Oh, okay. So it it, it kind of manifests itself. I see this in relationship a lot. You know, boy meets girl, boy gets girl, whatever. and, And it's like, I think men and women look at this differently. This is a different dynamic. You know, man finds a woman that he's in love with and, okay, I've got my woman and I'm in love and we're going to go on through, through time, right? And w- women, I think, are more interested in uh, a change, if you will. They, they, they want growth. They want the relationship to keep moving they want um refresh a refreshment if you will i'm not saying this is laid in stone but i think in general i can see these trends it's like for example two two kids get together young at a young age and out of high school whatever and the guy gets his job she gets a job start having kids whatever all of a sudden he's kind of static and and she's ready to to take the next step and the, and the guy is resistant to that. I mean, I think, I think men are more resistant to that, that kind of change than women. 
from what I've seen anyway. Hmm. So in this, in this context, what are you attaching that to? Uh, ask me that. <laughs> well, it just, it just that, you know, what you're saying is, it's like, okay, you do what you got to do. You get, you get to this point of success and then it's, you, you realize, okay, uh, now I have to, I have the responsibility to continue the success. So I have to do, I have to cause myself more discomfort to keep this moving along to keep mm-hmm. the chain of success going rather than it being a, a static point of success. Aha, I'm, I'm at success da, 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 and I'm done. Right. And it's not the way where I get twisted up is when I see people that want to just, and I think I mentioned this already, that I see people, this perpetual growth model that you got to keep going more and 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 more. I mean, how much, how much, how much does a, does anybody really need? Um, that's where I get a little confused, I guess. Interesting. Hey, y'all, just want to take a quick break in the action, let you know that if you're enjoying what you're listening to, please do recommend it to a friend. I would love to expand my audience, and the best ways to do that are word of mouth and reviewing my podcast on the iTunes Apple podcast platform. If you'd like to leave me a voice comment, go over to anchor.fm slash educate for life anchor.fm slash educate the number four life. It might even end up in the show. For more information about what I'm up to, please check out my website, www.educate4.life. That's educate the number four dot life. Now back to the show. Yeah, I guess the way I reflect on what you're just talking about is I better really want the thing that I'm going after if I'm going after it because I'll need to maintain it. So for example, talking about relationships, you know, when Aaron and I got together, we both made a very conscious decision that whoever we were with next, which happened to be each other, um, we wanted someone who we were going to continue to grow with, you know, who was willing to grow, who was willing to communicate and who was willing to put in the work in our relationship. And I've talked about that in way more detail in past episodes and I'll be happy to talk about it again. But for now, I bring that up simply because if you go into a circumstance knowing that you're willing to continue to work on it, to work on it perpetually, then working on it is not hard. I like to say it's only hard work if, if you're not willing to work hard. Otherwise it's just, it's just work. It just is what you do. It's just, it's just life. So for me, the perpetual growth model that's one of dissatisfaction is a problem. The idea that I will never be satisfied, I always have to mm-hmm. keep quote, growing, unquote, that to me is inherently a challenge. Or I need to go meet this arbitrary goal set for me by others. Like if I just start making $60,000 a year, I know I'll, uh, I've made it. Okay, does that mean once the first day you get paid or, or, or for the, that first year you've completed where you got paid $60,000, you're just going to stop working or you're going to change jobs or like there's something about that goal that's inherently flawed. If, if you were to say my goal is to make $60,000 and my next goal after that will be to start my own business, for example, like that's different um, because that's not a goal with a static end that when you meet it, just like, and I'm done, right? I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. 
well, great. You lost 10 pounds. Now what? Are you keeping that 10 pounds off or you just don't care anymore because you lost 10 pounds. So it matters. Now you can gain 30, right? Like, I think this is an inherent challenge with how we tend to think about things. And when I say we, I mean humans generally, but specifically in our culture, um, that we tend to make set goals that have static ends. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, perpetual growth is actually the ideal so long as it's not coming from dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. As long as it's coming from, this is an area that I enjoy growing or improving in, knowing that that can change, right? So like I had the opportunity to get more training about being an administrator for schools at a time when I was determining that I didn't want to be an administrator anymore, not because I didn't enjoy it, but because I was ready to start my own business. So I had the opportunity to take this class and I had had a mindset of growth up to that point. Like every opportunity I have to grow, I'm going to take it. And I needed to consciously stop myself in that moment and say, you know what? This is not an area in which I want to expend more energy. I would like to expend energy on starting my business and I have a finite amount of energy. So why go take this training? Like why spend my time and money taking this training? Even though, yes, it's an opportunity for growth. Like we shouldn't just grow for growth's sake, I don't believe. I did that for a a long time in my life and I actually think that made me less happy, not more happy. Mm. Um. So again, when you say perpetual growth, like from that perspective, like aimlessly growing, right. I think is not valuable or being in constant dissatisfaction. And so you need more. That doesn't make sense to me, but it makes perfect sense to consciously choose an area in your life where you want to steadily improve. Well, I just see this layer of competition, okay, amongst people in the, in the earning world. And it, it, to me, I see a lot of, undo unnecessary uh, manipulation of one another or of uh, and especially of your relationship with other people um i get together with a group of people from high school and they're all doing they've all done really well i don't think i don't think any of them besides myself let me think no i don't think any of them have a have a degree other than me and they're all doing well, probably better than me, right? And um, but it's like it's so so interesting the the little um, charms that they hold up to show their wealth, or you know the little displays they they feel compelled to make that says, "Oh yeah, I'm here. I've got this. I've got that." It's like just be you. I, I'm happy for you that you've made it well in life. Uh, you don't have to prove it to me. I, I, I still love you. I loved you since I was a, a kid in high school. And let's just be this. Let's just operate out of that. And I, you don't have to prove to me that, or, or even, uh, I, I found one guy constantly kind of justifying, right? He's got these collected, he's got this big collection of certain things and he's got a collection of cars and da da da. He's like, oh, well, they just make me feel success. It's like, good, good. You don't have to, you don't have to justify it to me. Mm-hmm. Nor do I really care that you have them. <laughs> not, not only do you not care, if we're extending this from the earlier conversation, I'm going to take a leap here. Tell me if you think this is true or not. Not only do you, quote, not care, but 
you actually would resist that because to you, right. that's just another representation of the trappings of money. And that's why you don't want money. Right. Cause yeah. you associate it with that. Right. Yeah. So, everyone's so, uncomfortable. Hooray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think it, that's actually a perfect way to get into self-talk. Right. Because it, if I'm reading what you just described correctly, um, your self-talk is money brings trappings and distance from actual joy. So why would I want money? And then you run into a friend who's doing well for themselves monetarily. But according to your analysis, is not actually happy. They're just justifying their trappings. And so now you have your own hang up and your interaction with them is altered based yeah. on that perception. What, would you say that's a fair analysis? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think they're happy and I, but I, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's pretty, that's a pretty good uh, way to look at it as far as how the situation is. And, and, and this has unfolded many times since we've known each other. I mean, it's been kind of this constant kind of coming together and, I, I see this. I mean, this was somebody whose father died when he was young and he had a good insurance. You know, there was a lot of insurance that he received at a young age, a lot of insurance compensation. So he always had everything. Now, not to say that he sat on his laurels. He's gone out and done well for himself, very well for himself. You know, but it's also, you know, I, I guess it's like, this is what, we're trained to believe that we got to show people these things in our lives to look successful, to, to quote unquote, meet the criteria of success in America. As Gary Vee says, I got to buy dumb shit to show off to people that I don't even like. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so outwardly focused. It's just amazing. It's so, and then, and then, 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 then when it really, when I start really thinking about it, it's like, it's very wasteful too. Mm. I mean, all these things that we get, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollar car, a million dollar house, uh, this and that, and this and that, all the resources we concern, you know, cons- consume just to say we're successful. When I get by on a lot less. I mean, I, I, I remember growing up in the 60s and 70s and a lot less, but we, we had fun. We had our minds. We had our creativity and we had each other. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just, I get, you know, what's it, the old, what is it, the old George Harrison song? Uh, you know, we were talking about the space between us all. And it just seems like that's what we create is the space between us all. Hmm. So if you had to compare, the the self talk of your friend to the self talk that you identified was your experience in the sixties. How would you distinguish those? I mean, the self talk about my friend. Uh, it doesn't matter. I was thinking the self talk that your friend had from what you would you presume mm-hmm. is happening in your friend's head to what you know of what's happening, what was, what was happening in your head or what you identify as the message of your, you know, your experience in the sixties. Like I'm just comparing contrast. Well, sixties and seventies, whatever. I just guess I, 
Well, it's your experience. I'm not saying trying to say the self-talk of the sixties. I'm just saying what you personally experienced. Well, I had real profound, I had real profound experience at a young age. I, um, I went to Europe. I went to Italy at 12 years old. I spent the summer essentially in, in Italy and I didn't know Italian. I didn't know anything. My father took us to his little hilltop village in, um, in Italy, 2,000 people or so, and there it was. So I had to learn how to speak a language. I, had, I, I was meeting a myriad of people that really from outer space, if you will. And, um, and it was all, and then as I got adjusted, everything was great and time to come home. And then uh, the first thing that I, I, I the first thing that, that hit me when I got home was people don't really care about me. They care about what I have as opposed to in Italy. It seemed like people cared about me or people related to me as me rather than my accumulation of material goods. Cause as soon as I got home, everybody's talking about their new color TV, their new bike, their new whatever, this and that, that they, that they bought or they could buy. And, I just, it just, I had, I had what they call, I think you know this term, reverse uh, cultural, reverse cultural shock, right? Mm -hmm. You come back to your own culture after being in another culture and you find your own culture hard to fit into. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what, where it started for me. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm just um, hurting myself by having these thoughts that I have, I'm holding myself back. That's where it gets, that's where it starts to get really tricky. That's where, like I say, trust myself, the trusting myself notion that's been coming through lately is, is I see it as a very positive thing, a very good thing for, for me because I've lived this other way for so long or I've had this self-talk for so long. Right. Yeah. Which to me begs the question, can you value other people and still make money? Well, yeah, of course. So then they're not really in conflict. Right. It's the conflict that I've been putting there. Right. So there's that, so there's that self-talk. So right. what I think is so interesting about this conversation and actually, hold on, let me pause for a second. Do okay. you have any additional thoughts about that? No, not at the moment. Um, I didn't want to rush past that too. No, quickly. no, no, no. It's okay. Um, because that I think is, is, a, is an inherent part of self-talk is that t- the self-talk that drives us the most and determines our actions the most is the self-talk that we are as yet unaware of. Right. And two things that seem to be in conflict, they seem to be paradoxical, often are not... Uh, it's a matter of bringing it all to light and then holding them next to each other and going, wait, these are not anathema. These are not polar. These things can exist simultaneously and in fact might benefit each other. Some of the people that I've gotten to know recently who have more money than they could ever quote need unquote are some of the most generous some right. of the most caring, some of the most honoring of those around them. Like if they go to say a restaurant or a club or someplace where they're receiving service, I see right. them genuinely connect 
with the staff. Right. And they know their names. They ask about their day. They ask them about their family. They're, they are very relaxed and they're caring and they're not, they're not worried about how much they have. So instead of operating from scarcity and lack, they're operating from abundance and they super, super connect to people and are incredibly loving and wonderful people. And that's also really wonderful for me to see. (laughs) It's a contrast to other people I see as greedy or stingy or not caring or... Oh, I see um, people like that with the the most profound amount of grace I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. That word grace. I mean, they just, like you say, they interact they're compassionate. They, 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 they're embracing to everyone. I think it's, I find that the same thing people with, you know, a good amount of money and it's, it's just incredible, you know, and beautiful. Not entitled. They're not being pejorative. Right. Genuinely care. I think that's so powerful. And so to me, what is so critical for myself and I would suggest would be valuable to others is unearthing that self-talk that we're not aware that we're operating from so that we can make conscious decisions about it. So for example, we just had a, whatever it was, 10, 15 minute conversation specifically around this self-talk that we each have collectively and separately about money. Mm-hmm. And about what wealth is or what wealth can bring or the damage it can do, the good it can do, et cetera, et cetera. So one way to unearth self-talk is to have someone to talk to, whether that's coaching or therapy or a conscious conversation with a friend. Like we're having a very conscious conversation. This isn't just like we're passively bitching about money. (laughs) We're having a conscious conversation where we're pulling apart money. So that's why often friends aren't good people to do that with because friends tend to either just have an argument or to reinforce um, and not necessarily have a conscious conversation. When I say that, I make a generalization. Um, I will say that I keep, you know, I count my friends on my close friends on one hand and I know that I would have a, could have a deep conversation with almost any of them about that. Um, but I would still choose to have this conversation in a conscious way, like this, the structure of this conversation or with a coach or a therapist, if I was really seeking to change right. my attitude or explore my attitude to see if it was serving me or not, which is why I always recommend, like, if you got something going on, find a coach, find a therapist, you know, find some way to, to unearth and process the stuff is the only other way that I know to do it for myself other than um, a repeated analysis, which doesn't always work because it might take a lot of energy, is journaling. Yeah. Is there something about writing it out that's different from just repeating it to myself in my head? It's as if it externalizes it. So I'm not just caught with a loop um, in my head. What do you find? Go ahead. Um, I, and, in, and in fact, I have, I do engage I, I, with a coach about this quite frequently. Uh, I've had a, a coach that on and off for, God, I don't know, 12 years now that, that I've worked with and was one of the people influential in me seeking out, you know, going into the, going at, going to IPEC and going to, to, to learn about coaching or become a coach. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's interesting because we keep 
we'll come back to this, we'll come back to this, come back to this. And uh, I, I think I'm really finally at the point where I can say, okay, I'm ready to let these old attitudes go and just accept it and accept myself for it. Because I started looking, what, what happened is, well, what's, what's happening right now, I guess, is um, I'm looking around at people, I'm looking around at people and say, why not me? I mean, I, I have as much, I have as much to offer as any, anyone else. And yet, uh, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not garnering it. So it's like, it's okay for me to garner it. I don't have to worry about it. Just let it happen. And I think it's just going to happen. I, I don't know. I can't tell you right now because you know me, I'm a bit intuitive. Mm-hmm. Somehow or other that's going to work, work through. And, uh, and I, I think, a lot of it too is just allowing space inside yourself to to allow that to to work through. For sure, yeah. I think the idea of holding space is is critical. Um, I once heard it described or read it described as um, there are kind of two acting parts of ourselves the one that produces the opportunity that essentially allows for there to be new possibilities. That's the one that creates space, right? So if you're, if this is your reality and it's an, it's a solid block, there's no, there's no opportunity. It's just a solid block. So part of you needs to consider that there could be an opportunity to make space for something to be different. And then the rest of you or another part of you's job then is to then fill that space is to take the action to consider the actions to go forth and do in order to produce something from that possibility from that opportunity and i think that's a very powerful image that if we don't allow for possibility if we don't make room for possibility then how are we going to enact it right it's almost like the whole notion of the, how can you create anything without an idea? You have to have the ideation first before anything gets, gets accomplished. Yeah. Design thinking is pretty amazing. If people aren't familiar, um, Stanford has a program called the D school, the design school, and they have a lot of free materials on their website. I know there are other organizations that do as well. I just happen to resonate, um, particularly with the ones that were, are currently being developed at Stanford um, because you know, as is true of design, they're iterating on their own iterations, their own designs, which I just find very exciting. And that when I think of the process of design, the design thinking process uh, that not just Stanford is developing, but like I said, others as well, it is so analogous, so perfectly brilliantly analogous to every facet of life, whether it's starting a business or losing weight or, um, developing a healthier relationship to, to start with the step that so many skip, which is empathy. And that can be empathy for yourself or empathy for those you're trying to help. So you actually understand the problem and then ideating, which coming up with ideas of how you could engage with that. And then choosing a few of those ideas and playing them out in your mind. What are some different ways of writing it down? How could I approach that? And then from that period of ideation, choosing one and just iterating on it at all, doing anything on it at all, 
seeing what it you know, plan, making some plans, taking some actions, and then decide that maybe this is the course or isn't the course of action. You know, do that a couple times, choose the one that feels best, and then just go. Because as we were discussing earlier, you don't have to stick with it forever. But test your theory. And this goes back to making choices about being safe and feeling safe and and not worrying about failing and being wrong or minimizing our worry about those things. But without, you know, elongating that too much, please check it out yourself. Look it up. Google is definitely your friend in that regard. Um, there's a lot of opportunity if we choose to unearth our self-talk, make space for a new possibility, and then fill it with conscious action. Well, while we're there, okay, because you've, I think we've, we've got, you know, you're, you're, you're real keen on journaling. Mm. Um, I mean, I mean, I journal inconsistently. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I journal as in a kind of di- diary style, you know, you know, today I went to school and on the way to school, I saw a frog. No, I mean, or I'll just encapsulate my day. Sometimes I'll get into my feelings and where I'm going with my feelings and trying to work out. And sometimes I just don't journal. So I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm open to suggestion there and what, what, what you might suggest, because I, I, I'm a good writer. I think I, I like writing. It's just, um, sometimes I think maybe too, um, it, 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 it's just like, okay. Um, why aren't I doing it? Yeah. Well, I, I journal a consistently myself and I know that is because, at least to my awareness, that is because I feel resistance to the emotional experience that I will have. And if not an emotional experience, again, it's this talking about that figurative death that when I have journaled consistently in the past, I have had rapid change. Hmm. And that can be seen as incredibly valuable and very exciting. It can also be seen as scary and terrifying because I feel out of control. Hmm. So I am such a proponent for journaling because I know how effective it is. And part of that is because of my resistance. My my resistance is evidence enough that this is a really kick-ass, amazing tool. Um, And so I have chosen to journal like a month ago I journaled about why I had resistance to journaling I just said screw it I'm going to put myself in discomfort I'm going to take this pencil I'm going to open up my journal and I'm going to open with why am I resistant to journaling Hmm. and within literally two sentences I was in a state of joy Hmm. I went from resistant and frustrated and uncomfortable to ease and comfort and joy it's like Hmm. I love writing yeah. I've been so caught up in my resistance to writing because of the emotional experience and the discomfort that it is likely to produce that I I consciously knew that I loved writing, but now I'm having the experience of loving writing. And and it just I just wrote for a little over a page about just reflecting on this this discomfort and how interesting and ironic that discomfort is and how I really enjoy writing and how I actually have learned to resist things that I enjoy as if somehow having that much joy is is not good or is distracting. Because I know that if I write, sometimes I can write for three hours straight, like have I neglected 
you know, <laughs> partner, you know, I've done that with music too. I put on headphones and just composed a piece in like three hours of just tinkering around on my computer. Cause I compose in the box as they say. Right. And it's like, could I, could I, should I have been doing something different? Again, the self-talk, these messages. Mm-hmm. Um, so journaling about that, unearth that, right? And I've talked to Erin about it. And she's like, no, you're fine. Like, if I needed something from you, I'd ask. I'm like, yeah, so why am I trying to control for so much error? You know, why can't I just enjoy it? So so that's that's kind of my spiel. That's where I am with it. And for me, the there the three most powerful forms of journaling are one, Matote journals, which are all about catching our thoughts in the moment. So right. it's meant to be carried with you. And I know you're familiar right. with it because I taught it in my course. Right. And you generously were one of my beta testers. Um, and for those that haven't heard me talk about it, Matote Journal is a way of exploring your judgment and your your victimhood. When you, when you see yourself as a victim in, in your life, of your life, um, and when you're judgmental of yourself and others. That's a very powerful process for becoming aware of our baseline self-talk. Um, and, and by which I mean our most intense self-talk throughout the day, um, things that we consciously say to ourselves, uh, but are not aware that we're either being a victim or a judge. So that a number one, the most powerful tool I've ever used in journaling for coming to awareness of myself. Um, and another form of journaling that I find very powerful is narrative journaling, which is essentially what you just described. It doesn't necessarily mean literally detailing your day, but it might just be, like morning pages. Morning pages are literally dumping whatever thought is in your head in that moment down onto the page. And just whatever thought comes into your head as you're writing, even if it's, I can't think of anything to write, that's what you write. Um, And it can be full-blown narrative uh, or it can just be thoughts, a stream of consciousness. So I guess those are technically different. One is narrative, one is stream of consciousness. But I, I tend to find that stream of consciousness ends up being narrative anyway. Um, which then leads to my third one, which is a structured journaling. And that can be explicit prompts, which find prompts, what am I grateful for today? Um, or like lists, you know, th- list three things that went well today. So prompted writing, um, and that includes prompted creative writing, because there's something to be said, I believe, for choosing to be creative and not limiting ourselves and our creativity. So there's this great set of prompts that I got from someone named Pat Pattison. He is a songwriting expert um, and, you know, a famous songwriter in his own right. When I say famous, I mean, he's someone that no one's ever heard of unless they're into songwriting (laughs) because he's famous in the songwriting community. You wouldn't like, you might know songs that he's written, but you would never have heard of him. Um, Anyway, he has these two great books on lyric writing and songwriting that he has an exercise where you have a limited amount of time to write and you write to a single word, you know, that word might be dentist or that word might be mirror and you stream of consciousness, write With the only guidance being to write from your seven senses, which being the typical five that we think of, mm-hmm. you know, sight and sound and taste and touch, um, and smell. And, then adding basically interoception and proprioception, which are, I've talked about this with uh, Selena Reams uh, on past episodes, but essentially your internal organic sense and then the kinesthetic sense, the feeling of your body in motion or um, things 
around surrounding your body. And I find that when I reconnect with my senses in that way, it alters my perception of reality. It makes me more conscious. And so even if I'm not journaling about my feelings or my thoughts or what's going on, it puts me in a different space a more receptive space in my life. So I think that's critically, critically valuable. So whether someone wants to get in touch with their self-talk around judgment or get in touch with um, the general what's in their head in the moment of stream of consciousness narrative writing, or whether someone wants to get in touch with their senses and recentering on their body and, and their critical awareness, those three things, man, yeah. I'm like top notch, top notch. I was journaling four days a week with the creative prompts for at least nine, I want to say nine months, nine mm-hmm. months to a year. Every lunch break I was doing almost every lunch break. Uh, I was doing that uh, for about a year and it was very powerful. And if I wasn't doing a creative prompt, I was doing visioning. I was, you know, practicing what it would be like to be a business owner and how that looks, how much does it look to charge a certain amount to work a certain number of hours. So I was visioning. It wasn't quite narrative journaling um, and it wasn't a Matote journal, but it was, I also find it powerful, just not as powerful as the other three that I mentioned. So, so, so. You, you, you were coming up with your own prompts. You were, you, you, you hit on a prompt and just work with that and, and, and take that where, where it took you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't know if you had a little book of creative prompts and you know, I write about this today. What would it be like? Yeah. I mean, I, I most often followed, if I was doing a creative prompt, I would follow one of Pat's, um, suggestions Mm -hmm. so like dentist for 90 seconds or mirror for 10 minutes or whatever it happened to be um i I, for my own students in the classroom i would come up with random things like i'd look in the room and see vase i'm like great and i would say vase and you have five minutes and then you know marker you have 30 seconds like what you know, and then I would say whatever whiteboard 10 minutes. And it was just amazing watching them, you know, ebb and flow through that and how they perceive time differently while they were writing. And it's just very, very cool. You would just say the one word prompt. Yeah. They're to do with it, whatever they wanted. Yeah. With the, with the guidance being uh, to, to use their seven senses. So we would discuss the seven senses Right. Uh, or remind them about the seven senses and then and, and remind about the idea of stream of consciousness being that if you have a ten, if you have 10 minutes to write, you're expected to write for the whole 10 minutes. So it's not like five minutes and you say, I'm done. Like you're not done. Keep, keep writing. And it doesn't even have to end up, let's say it was a mirror. If it's genuinely stream of consciousness, you might be talking about the ocean in like 30 seconds. And you may not talk about a mirror ever again in during that prompt. All that matters is you're following your senses right. and you're, and you're following your stream of consciousness and you keep going. So it could be 10 minutes solid of writing about mirrors <laughs> or it could be, you know, could talk about, and if talking about the night sky and like, that's how I would write at some point in the writing, the mirror would shatter and the, the shattered mirror would become stars and then the stars become reflected in the water. And then it was the ocean. And then, and then it would come back to a mirror at the end as someone like looked in the water as a reflection or like whatever, like it was intended to be just creative stream of consciousness sure. about the senses. So, Well, I think the Matote concept is very interesting because I too have been, I don't know. I don't think I've been writing them down, but I've been very, very conscious of, uh, 
my judgments, especially around money, which we talked about. Um, I've been looking at those and other people too. And it's like, okay, um, somebody said something to me. Oh, my friend, I was talking to my friend this morning and he's got a, some situation with, he's got a lack of communication with his siblings. And, and I said, well, have you asked that question? No. Why? Because I know, how do you know? How do you know this, this, this thing until you ask? And if, it, if, if you get the reaction that you think you're going to get, then let it go. At least you've asked and you have a little more certainty in your mind rather than letting this hang out in space forever. You know, my, my mom once said, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. Yeah, it's true. It's if you true. ask, the answer might be yes, but if you don't ask, the answer is always no. That's, that's true. It's like, and she said that to me when I was like five. <laughs> that well, was a very powerful thing for a five-year-old to hear. I was like, holy crap. That's mind expanding. Yeah. 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 You're, you're lucky. You're lucky. Oh. You had uh, the parents you had. Oh, very fortunate. Very, very, very fortunate to have parents that I have and and to have had those opportunities for self-reflection as much as I might be, you know, still to this day angry with my parents for certain choices they made. I look at all the opportunities that I have simply because of how they chose to raise me. It's... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's spectacular. When we were chatting and you were paying me some compliments before we started recording, which I really appreciated. And part of what allowed that to be was, you know, when I got honored for who I was and, you know, well, and some of the support that I got. So, Well, it's interesting that you make that statement about, you know, you're angry about certain choices that they made, but overall, you know, you're very fortunate that you had them. And I think we can all say that. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the opportunities and the, and the, and the uh, how would you say, the experiential base that my parents and my immediate family gave me, that shaped me a lot, just, just as you've been shaped. But yeah, the things that really sucked about it, oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, for the sake of, of time yes, and... Sir. I think it would be good to discuss any major takeaways. We're clearly are going to need a third, <laughs> third conversation. Uh, because again, each, each sub point that we were like, Oh, this is great. We'll talk about that for 20 minutes. Talk about that for 20 minutes. It'll be cool. Whatever. No big deal. Um, we ended up talking for an hour. So uh, actually closer to an hour and a half. Yeah. With that being the case, I think it'd be great to, TLDL, too long, didn't listen. Uh, this, <laughs> this whole conversation, um, any major takeaways or any wrap-up thoughts that you might have about what we've been discussing today? Uh, I think the major takeaway, uh, because I, 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 you might have noticed that my, my, well, first of all, my camera hasn't worked and I feel less engaged with you because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm looking at a still picture of myself that I don't really like here. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I think the self-talk thing was, I think 
I mean, I've, I've, for myself, like I wake up in the morning and the first thing that happens is self-talk. It's like my mind starts clicking on the self-talk, whether positive or negative or what. And it's like, okay, uh, you got to stop, stop right now, get up, get, get moving. And I think that's, uh, on the embracing action as a remedy for indecision. You know, that's one of our points to discuss in an upcoming, in an upcoming saga. Yes. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that the self-talk is extremely important as far as how we look at it, how we hold it and how much we let it run our, our lives. As I said earlier, my self-talk has been trust myself, trust, 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 trust myself, trust. And, for me, that's a that's a giant leap. Yeah, my my major thought is that with self talk generally, but any any of the stuff we've talked about today, is that it is critically important for us to choose how we're expending our energy, and we expend so much energy unconsciously, un, un or or perhaps I should say with a lack of awareness. Um, so if all the self-talk, all the programming, all these things going on, overwhelm, et cetera, that's energy that we're expending that we could be expending on solving our problem, having something we want, growing, changing in a positive way. And so it, it is again, critically important to unearth it. If we want positive change, if we want, that additional joy and ease and comfort sure. in a, in a real full way, not the quote ease and quote comfort of coping because coping comfort is never really as comfortable as fulfilled comfort. The, the number of times I'm like, Oh, I'm feeling overwhelmed. So I'm going to play a video game or research something unrelated to what I set aside for myself to do today. And I distract myself temporarily and I quote, feel better unquote. But the fact is I still feel uncomfortable. I've just hidden it under a layer of comfort. And that when I actually address the problem, like you said, going through the to-do list, having resistance, then you actually do the item on the to-do list. It takes you 30 seconds and you feel 10,000 times better. Like we could experience, you know, we could expend our energy to solve our problems and feel genuine joy, relief, fulfillment, as opposed to expending our energy, distracting ourselves from the challenge. And again, we know why we talked about why we talked about how our brains are programmed to avoid discomfort, um, and risk and all of that stuff and change risks, more change and effort risks, more effort. And like, it makes sense. None of this is dismissive. It makes perfect right. sense why we've made the choices that we've made. And if we'd like to have a different experience, we need to make different choices, right. deploy our energy in different ways. And once we've done that, then we can feel that more genuine fulfillment, joy, ease, comfort, connection, et cetera, all of it, all of it. Um, but it does take choosing discomfort, it does take choosing to delve into our self-talk, choosing to delve into our choices. I think it's skipping the step of writing it down. You know, you said you've been thinking a lot about your judgment. I think a lot about my judgment too. And when I write it down, though, I stop thinking about my judgment because I stop having it. Mm -hmm. And so I yeah. need to remind myself to journal more, even if it's literally just running down the thought that I just had. Yeah. Because then it's out of my head. It's no longer on a loop as if it's still important. Um, and then I can review it later. 
in context of a bunch of other thoughts and go, wow, these three thoughts look different, but they're actually the same. Uh, I now I'm unearthing this pattern I didn't know that I had. Whereas if I never wrote it down, it's just the thought I keep repeating to myself. So that's my other, like, that's my application for today tip is write it down as much as it's weird or uncomfortable or it might seem woo woo or bizarre. It literally changes your brain processing to just write it down. So that's my encouragement to everyone to do that. Yeah. I, I, I like that expression. It's I, I keep it on a loop as if it's important. Yeah. 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 It's like, it's like having a, you know, a sore tooth or something. You're going to keep playing with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or you just remove it. You just go to the dentist and have it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so true. So true. There's a comfort in discomfort sometimes to like right. to play with a tooth sometimes feels more comfortable than just have it removed. So again, it makes perfect sense why we're, it may be ironic, but it still is logical why we do these things that seem to not serve us. Uh, so it's, again, I'm down to a conscious choice to, to do something different. So, All right, sir. As always, wonderful having a conversation with you, my friend. Yeah. So we are going to do this a third time? Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> I think we ought to. Hey again, thanks for listening. If you want more goodness, come hang out with me on Instagram at educate4 underscore life. That's educate, the number four, underscore life. I jump on almost every day and go live once per week to answer questions and just talk about what's on my mind. We've got some cool stuff coming down the pipe, so expect some announcements in the near future. And with that, I hope you have a great week. Talk with you soon.